0: Doing another one of our long-form podcasts here. The Armstrong and Getty Show is a radio show heard on the West Coast with Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. But we have these guests on all the time where we think we'd like to talk to them for a longer period of time than you get in commercial radio.
1: So let's do it with Mike Lyon, CBS News military analyst since February of 03 What is your current title?
3: Uh, I'm a retired Army major. I'm a CBS military analyst. Um... And uh I'm actually gonna be a fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point this uh coming semester. Oh, cool. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, it's awesome. to do that. Hopefully help them with some social media and get into the weeds. My son was making fun of me. He said there's no chance you'd ever get I'm I'm a retail military analyst, right? I mean, that's really my gig. Um
2: uh-huh.
3: you know, there's guys out there that um, you know, retired four stars with thirty-five years in that, you know, I, I just get up every day and 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 study the military. I talk to people and and just kind of chip away at it and try to help educate and I want to go on your show I feel on well, my twitter feed I can I can educate people on what's kind of going out there what they should be focused on I think and then and then you know have a debate on something too so anyway mm-hmm. yeah but I'm beautiful. looking forward to working with West Point Well
1: for folks who are hip to the on air Armstrong and Getty show you know that Mike Lyons has been a uh, an esteemed guest a military analyst among other things for years but uh, whether it's the length of our segments or the fact that you have other stations you need to jump on or whatever we always have to cut things short and, and we always feel like we'd love to continue talking to you, so this is going to be fun. That's great. Perfect. Well, and with your permission, uh, we want to depart from the usual thing, which is talking about uh, geopolitics, especially as it pertains to the military. We'll do some of that, but um, we just wanted to talk about the realities of the American military and American military families for a little mm-hmm. while. And why don't we start with a very broad question. Uh, what do you think is the state of the American military family in the year 2018?
3: Well, I, I think the American military family is is held together, you know, day to day, week to week, month to month. And it's based on the deployments of the soldiers that are out there. Uh, the military family, more than most, you know, hangs on what a president says, no matter who the president is, because of uh, that person is the commander in chief, is more cognizant of uh, global affairs, recognizes places in the world where their loved one can be deployed to. And, and I think that, um, you know, it creates a tremendous hardship on the family. I used to always say that if we keep this pace up that we're going at right now, which we have been going up, you're either as a soldier, you're gonna lose your mind or your family. And unfortunately there's been uh, a lot of families broken up because of the stress that's putting on it. And, and I think that, uh, and while the army in particular is trying to do what it can, the mission is such that the, that the soldier is just so stretched out doing so many different things. It hasn't broken yet. Um, but I think, uh, in the future we could possibly see, uh, you know, a real crisis.
0: Yeah. I wonder about that too. I mean, whether it's the VA, uh, situation where, you know, you could, you could, uh, have served your country and even enjoyed your military experience. Um, and then you get treated bad by the VA and you tell your kids "No, nah, don't do it. They lie to you. They don't, they don't follow through their promises. Or I wonder about my, uh, my brothers who was, um, He's been in long enough to retire, but he's he's been in all kinds of deployments in the Middle East over the years and his kids and uh, have not seen him for long periods of time. That's what they grew up with. I don't know if they're going to think their kids ought to get into it. I just wonder if, you know, we'll continue to have generations of military families.
3: I, I think that one of the unfortunate aspects of um, the military, especially in the last 20 years and the last generation, let's say, has been this. It's become the family business, and that 's just not necessarily the the way to go um, from a nepotistic perspective I, I think you know given the fact that uh, you, you know how it 's going to linger within the families and how things will, will go i don 't think you get the turnover you don 't get others in society contributing to the military you know the military should reflect the civilian society in, in all ways shapes, forms, and sizes and it sometimes it doesn 't the demographics aren 't such that it doesn 't do that there as well. But, but in particular, um, you know, enduring the hardship is something that military families have to go through. And, um, you know, you, you do that over time, and you're going to miss a lot of things. You're going to miss a lot of kids' baseball games. You're going to miss uh, – you're going to be away for a lot of birthday parties. And you kind of hope that it works out. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Well, well let's
1: stay micro for a minute. Then I want to talk about the macro issue of the way, you know, America had... – chooses and pays, and the rest of it, it's military. But you talked about uh, wearing soldiers out, um, the multiple deployments. How is that different from generations past? What's changed?
3: Just the number alone um, and and the duration of these deployments. Uh, You know, you'd go, you know, prior to 2003, prior to the situation of these endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you could go potentially 20 years and not have uh, any deployment at all. You look back from you know, 1975 through Desert Storm, 1991, there weren't soldiers deployed all around the world. They were stationed in certain places. A hardship tour back then was considered a 13-month tour unaccompanied without your family to go to Korea. And that was it. Uh, and now that, that's completely changed. You, you can deploy for six months in Afghanistan, come home to rest for 12 to 18 months, and rear right back then in Afghanistan. So people are doing multiple deployments. Go back to um, the reserve units, even in particular that, you know, they shifted so much of the combat power into reserve units after the Vietnam War, uh, given what happened. You know, those there was a time when you would join a reserve unit to go pay for college. There was almost virtually no expectation you're going to deploy. If you're in a reserve unit within the military right now, the army in particular, you're going downrange at some point. You're going for a long period of time. It's going to take you out of your job. It's going to take you away from your family.
1: Well, and puts you in in the way of of serious danger and stress and the rest of it, which you know is a is a change as you 're saying
3: mm-hmm. and and I think what we require these soldiers to do nowadays is another impossible mission and that 's flip this switch from being a war fighter to a peacekeeper uh, you, you know you go to certain areas and in this block i 'm a war fighter i 've got to fight and defend what 's going on, but then the next block uh, i 'm a peacekeeper trying to keep two sides within a civilian population from killing each other and I, I had an argument with uh, a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, of all things, at a social event once, that I just think it's impossible to expect our soldiers, and in particular our Marines, who are killers. Our Mar- Marines don't join up to be peacekeepers. They're not, they're not joining up any place to you know, hand out flowers and, and MREs to people. And I just think it's impossible, no matter how disciplined that unit is, to flip a switch between being a warfighter and a peacekeeper. And I think that's one of the other challenges I never had to deal with. I, I was I trained— to basically you know, fight as infantry when required, fight artillery, fight in combat, fight in wars, and this whole issue about phase five peacekeeping is another thing that the military has taken on because it needs the budget money, but it's really now an important mission. It's, it's a critical mission.
1: Well, on a similar topic, and, and I say this not to toot our own horns, in fact just the opposite, we've been honored and privileged to uh, be part of some pretty major fundraising efforts for various uh, causes that include, uh, you know, Soldiers, sailors, Marines, military families, et cetera, um, veterans. Um, and at some of the gatherings, I've, we have talked to guys who are recently back from Afghanistan, Iraq. And what they've told us about the rules of engagement um, have left me enraged. I mean, actually red-faced and vibrating with anger that mm-hmm. they have to wait until they are certain they are in mortal danger um, before they return fire at, or before they fire, which in many cases ends up with dead Marines, dead American mm-hmm. boys. Um, and I, I wish the public knew a little more about that. But that factors directly or that flows directly from what you were saying, the idea that they're there to be uh, ambassadors of goodwill when they're not killing mm-hmm. machines.
3: Yeah, I mean, because of all the, the rules of engagement and combat and warfare are totally been blurred in this age of of fighting terrorism. You know, in, in the old days, the enemy wore a uniform. They were across a certain border. Uh, you know, there was a, somewhat of a fight with honor. There was, all, you know, rules of war that were well-defined. At today's, you look at the green on blue attack you have in Afghanistan. There's just, it's, the, the the picture is so cloudy The it's called asymmetrical warfare, 360 degrees all around. We just expect our soldiers, Marine sailors, everybody to have this 360-degree awareness. I mean, I try to teach my kids to think six inches past their nose, uh, let alone now to try to think 360 degrees around them uh, in order for a threat to come even in places where you're supposed to be safe and secure and go back to those rules of engagement. You might not even be able to engage uh, once uh, once the shooting starts. So it, it is a challenge. And I again, I just don't think you can flip a switch. Human nature comes in and takes over on things that uh, that don't always count.
0: Boy, and then how about switching the f- the, flipping the switch back off once you uh, come home and get out uh you know we, we hear a lot about homelessness suicide rates all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff is it even realistic to expect people to especially in the maybe if you're you know in your late teens early 20s really forming your your brain and the way your body reacts to life um mm-hmm. then to go back to, to to normal life is that even I- a reasonable expectation
3: no, I agree, and I and I think from my perspective, I prepared my whole adult life to go to combat. I you know I went to the military academy, I studied the history of war, I studied the military art, I, I read you know books about platoon leaders, I read about what men and, and did on Christmas time, for example, and and Bastogne and how they, you know how they held it together, knowing that when I spent. Christmas in a combat zone. I felt I'm almost privileged the fact that I had almost been there before in some kind of weird way. So I think it gets back to preparation. And so I felt when I came home, it was just, you know, there's clearly nothing like a war zone. There's nothing like a combat zone in terms of the the morality and the norms that exist there. But I think we've just sent too many people into that area without that pre-preparation. They sign up for different reasons. You know, they sign up to actually go to war. You don't want actually those kinds of people somewhere around you. They're going to get everybody killed if they're out there just to, just to kill anybody. You need smart people. We've, we've unfortunately dropped some of those standards in the past here as well. So it all gets back to being prepared to go to war before you get there, and then that will help you on the adjustment coming back. Well, and
1: it seems to me that any people with a conscience would understand the difficulty of that adjustment coming back and would have pretty well-developed programs to deal with that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact. Have you had a chance to get to, to read uh, S- Sebastian Junger's fabulous book, Tribe?
3: I've not read that one. I've read the other book, the one oh. on Corgal and, and what took place there. I saw the the documentary and I thought, Yeah, boy, if this isn't Vietnam, I don't know what is. I mean, it just just I didn't like the lack of discipline in that unit. You know, it just got all cards on the table. And I met him and I talked to him about it. And, uh, you know, because that's not what the military, the army in particular needs and wants is this other kind of Vietnam situation where it's almost survival of the fittest. I didn't like, um, you know, I, I didn't think the officers were treated in a manner that they should have been. It's a, it was not a very good snapshot, I thought, of what's, of what should a unit look like. Right, but the, the book Tribe
1: is all about the way we tend to band together as homo sapiens and the thing, and, and how strong that need is. And he talks a great deal about folks in the military and coming back home and how um, a, a young man or a woman uh, will have an experience where they have a life-and-death trust with a fairly small group of people, and that is so incredibly satisfying to the human soul, and, and it's also so necessary in a war zone. Um, but then one of the aspects of, of PTSD or, or difficulty adjusting back is you get back to the stupid, petty, slow-paced, uh, real world, quote-unquote, and that's, mm-hmm. r- it's really hard for guys um, and you know the the famous contrast is that at the end of WW two it took months for these guys to get back home, in you right. know the the, the, the in country centers, then uh, weeks on a cruise ship, then being mustered out,
3: et cetera, et cetera, and and now mm-hmm. it's it's literally a nonstop
1: plane flight, and there you are back in Omaha.
3: Yeah, and on top of that, while you've been in combat, you've been FaceTiming with your family, and and, and you know communication is instant in, in some ways. You've got a, a lot. You've got a lot more exposure to the outside world, and um, I, I do agree that when you do come home – I mean, look, the, the the reality of combat is it provides this adrenaline rush that's really pretty hard to, to replicate. You know, it, I, I'm a sports guy. I like a lot of sports analogies, but it's still nothing close, especially if you're successful. I mean our, our units were – in Desert Storm, for example, were just so successful. You just – it was no match and your level of invincibility just was sent to a whole different level that when you do things in the future it you kind of compare and contrast to that you know, how you felt about that so you're right it's hard to uh find that feeling again especially when you run up to against civilians i've i've run up to civilians in the job force that have literally you know we're asking about getting people in and i said why don't we recruit some veterans i know a couple of guys to to we can go after and and, and literally i had senior people telling me we really want to do that. Those guys are all damaged. We don't want to do that. And I said, "Well, am I damaged? And why? How do I look? I mean, am I, am I coming off in a in a way that's damaged?" So, um, God, I'd be it, tempted it to damage no them for that saying adjustment that. Adjustment is, is a challenge, and it's there. Yeah.
0: Um, this just popped into my head. Uh, how good is our military? I remember hearing. I think it was John McCain one time. He was asked the question about how good is our military because you know, as Americans, we get a, a a great charge out of. I know I have my whole life of we have the best military in the world, right? Um, we could beat anybody, and we take pride in that. I heard John McCain talking about it, and they said, have you ever faced any soldiers that, or, or know of any soldiers that were as good as, you know, the U.S.? And he said the North Vietnamese regulars were were as good. What's What's your experience with that? Are we better than everybody else? Who out there compares to us?
3: We are for a couple of different reasons. Number one, we have the best technology that you could imagine. Um, and when we get into a combat situation in a combat zone all that technology comes to play i can tell you when i was in a combat zone all things showed up that i'd never even seen before and we were successful in implementing it quickly to you know in our operations and systems so that's number one number two we have that not only the technology but the equipment in and above itself our our equipment it depends on survivability we we build tanks and apcs and armor personnel carriers and equipment and planes that that survives um, combat and in order for the the soldier to feel confident in it uh, i looked at soviet tanks and i've looked at soviet um, armored personnel carriers and they're just tin cans they're just death traps so our protection of the force is something that's very important to the soldier but then the third thing is at the end of the day our military is superb because it trains in a combined arms way and we truly fight like the germans did in the second world war with this you know we call it airland battle uh, you know they—they were—you know—combining tanks and combining airplanes and, and infantry on the ground uh, in, in that um, in that blitzkrieg. It's the same thing. Uh, fighting the way we fight when we put all our things together. When we wind this big fist up and we take the time and wind it all up. Uh, there's no one, there's nothing on the planet that can defeat the U.S. military when it decides to put its 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 uh, mind
0: to something. That's interesting.
1: A, a great coach doesn't uh, roll around pleasuring himself over his team's strengths. He talks about uh, he they go after what the team isn't doing well. What's wrong with uh, the U.S. military? What's weak, or, or or what's wrong with the Pentagon specifically? What could be better?
3: The Pentagon is such a bureaucracy that can't adjust to the civilians and the political environment. And I think that that is the biggest challenge right now. And and while it's trying to adjust, you know, the, the Pentagon has got to work off intent so many, so many ways. And it moves down, the you know, the highway I saw, you know, so as it's trying to acquire weapons, there's people in the Pentagon that are looking 20, 30 years down the road on technology that the military has to buy right now. And and there's there's things that the Pentagon has to do now that affect that down the road, but politicians are just worried about getting reelected in the next two to four years, and whether or not those projects get funded or not. So the the Pentagon, you know, has to do ten or fifteen things and and do a lot of make-work stuff for things that end up not happening, go sit on a shelf someplace, um, because they can't adjust to the the political environment. Uh, once in combat, though, once once you unleash the Pentagon and un- unleash the power of the military. Again, the resources go, and tennis is followed. Look, there's no other organization aside from the military that can get to Ebola and and fight a, a, a pandemic that exists there. I mean, Napoleon would never send his army into that that kind of environment. The military can get to Haiti. The military can get anywhere else in the world. The navy, and once it cranks it up, it can do it. But um, but sometimes it gets caught up in the bureaucracy of politics, and I think that's its biggest. That's stone.
0: interesting that the last two questions and answers go together. So the Pentagon with its. You know, having to think years in the future and the politics holding back and all this, yet we still are ahead of all these authoritarian countries where they can make decisions on a dime. One person can make that decision. How how do we stay ahead of all these people?
3: It's money. I mean, you look at the budget that was just approved over 700 billion dollars. We have a budget that's, you know, 10 times the next uh, the next competitor that's out there. and so and and the military industrial complex is a tremendous jobs program. I mean, let's face it, we 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 make things that we don't even use in, in some levels. And so I, I think that um you, you know you you bring all all that together, the fact that we do invest what we invest in the military, and and you combine that with the technology. and and it gets back to uh, from now, the world is so much shorter. You know, it's smaller. Uh, if you're our enemy right now, that's the thing. If you're our enemy right now, you're not even going to try to fight the United States conventionally. I mean, H.R. McMaster said that recently. It'd be stupid for you to do something like that. The The next battle is happening in cyber. The next battle is happening in that fifth domain, possibly even space. I mean, Trump's got it right here with this Space Force. Um, somebody goes and takes out all our satellites, takes out a lot of the technology in space. We could be blinded. That's a real problem. So the next battle is not going to happen conventionally on the ground, even though we're still preparing for that.
1: A couple more Pentagon questions. I keep hearing that we have a shortage of spare parts for our aircraft. Is that true, more or less?
3: It is, but I, I will tell you this. The Air Force doesn't do a great job of managing that. I mean, I'll, again, all cards on the table because the Air Force is pretty smart. The Air Force funds its people programs first. It funds its golf courses and its housing projects and, and things and makes sure all that happens. And so when the Air Force runs out of money, they go and claim, look, our spare parts aren't here. And it's their way of trying to get money from Cong- extra money from Congress that they didn't budget for uh, other service branches don't do that. The, mm. the army is so big; it has a challenge. to Do that. So, so they've they've done this before. That's what's what that's what their mo is. Mm. So, for them to say that they don't have spare parts, that is 100% their fault, their responsibility. I and again, you're not it, anti-golf course, be, are you, Mike Lyons? <laughs> I won't hear it. <laughs> yeah, somebody should be fired over that. It's a similar. The bottom line is this: um, you know, I worked for a general officer who said, "If I give you all the resources you ask for, and say, and I've, I give you all those things." Uh, I expect you to get the job done. Well, the Congress allocates the Air Force all the resources it needs to get the job done. If they're going to want to come because they misallocated something on their side, that's on them.
1: All right, one more question of that sort. I remember Bob Gates, the former Secretary of Defense, talking about his frustration trying to get the, uh, the MRAPs, the more advanced armored vehicles, to the guys who were getting uh, killed over and over again by IEDs, and that even he, as the Secretary of Defense, uh, found it incredibly frustrating to deal with the bureaucracy Mm -hmm. of the pentagon that troubled me a lot
3: yeah and i think um a lot of that just has to do with um there was no anticipation of that as a requirement it took took a lot longer from an acquisition cycle perspective there was nothing commercially available on the shelf they call cots there's nothing that they could have you know picked out of a ford factory or or you know a chrysler or a gm factory that that could that could have modified it because of of kind of the purple squirrel that gets made every time you know a military equipment is is ordered um, no one kind of thought, thought thought that through we ended up not having you know going to war in a manner that we had gone in the past for desert storm we waited 6 months we we kind of wound that big fist up and then when we let when we unleashed it it was it was pretty pretty violent and brutal. This time here, we kind of did a just in time war with Rumsfeld and we didn't bring everything to the battle that we needed to bring. And, and Rumsfeld even said to himself, you know, you go to war with the equipment you have. So we just didn't kind of think it through. Interesting.
1: What was that purple squirrel metaphor?
3: Yeah, so the the military often wants a purple squirrel in order to accomplish a certain mission. So you've got to you can't get something commercially available off the shelf. It's got to be redesigned from the from the ground up. And then no one anticipated the level of IEDs, which are nothing mm. more than you know landmines. But no one anticipated that they would have to do that. So the military you know wanted a purple squirrel. There was none. There was none available commercially. They had to redesign them. So from an acquisition perspective, it took them a while to get them downrange.
0: Interesting. I'll use that the rest of my life. So you uh, you've been studying the military your whole life. I have too. As a guy who never served, and I just I, I don't I always thought I'd join the military, and then I didn't for some reason. I got into radio, but I've read so many books and you know firsthand accounts of being in the, in this war, or that war, and all that sort of stuff. I've been fascinated. Uh, a couple of articles in the last year or so about how um, one of the re- ways Hitler pulled off the whole Blitzkrieg thing was everybody was messed up. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Everybody was all hopped up on meth, and that's how the, uh, Churchill was wondering, how did they do this? How did they march that far in that many days? How did they pull that off and they're just using meth?
3: I know when we fight uh, in Somalia, there's a a, uh, product there called CAT that uh, the the soldiers on the other side, the terrorists, uh, whatever you want to call them, the warlord soldiers, whatever, they're all hopped up on that. uh, When when we fought them, go back to Mogadishu in, in 93, the battle there, I talked to one of the, the the delta commander on the ground is a classmate of mine is a good friend of mine he's actually going to take over Afghanistan Scotty Miller and I asked him about what it was like to fight against those guys and he says they're just they just keep coming at you because of this drug that they're on this narcotic drug that just gives them no fear and they just they just don't stop um, doesn't surprise me and, and again it gets, you know it's that's how the people compete athletically they yeah. they do something different to their body because there's no question combat in the military can can wear it on your body if you're well, not uh, if you're not careful.
0: That's interesting. One of the reasons I bring it up I don't know if you've ever read uh, Keegan's classic Faces of Battle. I think it is, where he takes on three different uh, battles throughout history, 1200s, 1500s, and 1800s. I think, if I remember correctly, and just what the battles was like. But one thing they all had in common was they got boozed up. A lot yeah. of them got boozed up before they fought. It was just, you know, I know I know, I feel uh, tougher and more invincible when I get a little boozed up. Do 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 we do that, or have we done that in the past?
3: No, not in the military I've seen, um, not not in my, in my time or experience in the last, let's say, 30, 35 years. Now, again, I got in just after the Vietnam era, and we had some challenges for sure with soldiers back, um, you know, late 70s, you know, early 80s with uh, with them coming from Vietnam, but from for going into battle— I wouldn't say we have anything close to that.
1: Hmm. Hey, speaking of Vietnam, what do you think of the idea of a, a draft and or compulsory service of the Israeli model?
3: Yeah, I just think it's too hard um, for our country to try to pull something like that off a draft. Um, you, you, it, I don't think – and the army doesn't want it, I know, in particular, because you want people that are going to volunteer. They're going to want to be there. They they don't want this kind of turnover. All these countries that have that, the compulsory military model in some cases is because they have to defend their land. Switzerland's got a 14-year compulsory um, model. The um, Israelis get up every day wondering if um, you know if the Arabs have, have massed at the border and they got to go defend their country. I mean, today, compared to again 20, 30 years ago, that's probably not going to be a high probability, or the, the the missiles will come from Iran or someplace else. But I you know I think it's it's great in and sound and I think but from a logistical perspective. It's just too hard to manage and, well, and people you don't want pay attention at least who who can't get there from here. At least uh, people with...
0: would pay attention all of a sudden. I find it hard to believe we'd still be in Afghanistan kind of mucking around not with a clear goal after all these years. Mm-hmm. If, if everybody either was on the way or their kid was on their way.
3: I know. And I look at Afghanistan and it's it's more like Vietnam to me. But we we can't lose it because we will not have the same level of losses but there's probably an undercurrent in the Pentagon that likes the fact that we've got troops downrange that we could use it as a test bed for a laboratory, and it keeps us engaged uh, in in combat. I, you know, and and with the with the um, unspoken word of you know this president, no president wants to be the one that gets us out of Afghanistan and has this you know visual of the helicopter landing on the embassy and we have to get out of there. But. Um, you know, if we wanted to get out of Afghanistan, we could. Look, Barack Obama did it. We got us out of Iraq, just said, this is what we're doing. You know, put a stake in the ground. 1231, 2011. Goodbye. Good luck. Godspeed, all travelers. And obviously, what happened was a lot worse. But if we wanted to get out, we could get out.
1: We had a long conversation recently with your colleague, Laura Logan. And she, from her reporting and talking to sources and all, was pretty confident that look we are there and going to remain there number one so afghanistan doesn't descend into complete lawlessness also as a counterbalance to the pakistanis and the iranians in the in the region and that we are going to have a couple of massive bases and it's it's going to be more like a a limited occupation than a quote unquote war for a very long time
3: yeah and that, that doesn't surprise me like the south korea model the biggest thing that i felt about leaving Iraq was—we um, were going to just lose out on that opportunity to have a big base there. If you had the first armored division in Iraq, and if it stayed in Iraq at the end of that conflict, um, you wouldn't have had ISIS. You would have had a completely different um, scenario. Now, you still might have had, you know, the Shia and Sunni, um, you know, challenges there. Uh, but Iran acts differently. Everything acts differently when you know 384 main battle tanks can drive due north. And in 12 hours be in either Damascus and Syria or in Tehran and Iran. So I, I'm we, we gave up a big, um, you know, a big leg in, in the game when we gave up Iraq and the Pentagon's just not going to let that mistake happen again. We're, we're going to build stuff inside of Afghanistan. We're going nowhere. And I think we're going to end up having 20,000 troops there at some point. that will be combat troops.
1: So this is a big, dumb question, but it's intended to get us to something that's not dumb. Um, the the oft repeated uh, question, are we going to be the policemen of the world? Um, You know, to some extent, yes, we are, because American uh, presence ensures the free flow of commerce and and the uh, preservation of human rights, et cetera, et cetera, all over the world in a way that benefits the hell out of the American people. Sometimes I wonder if the president uh, appreciates that, the current guy. Um, But obviously, we cannot be in every hellhole
0: where
3: human rights are being denied or or injustice is being done. Right. And we pick our places mostly based on economics. And. Right now, we project power mostly with our navy, with our you know eleven air carrier navy that uh, and Pacific and Atlantic fleet. If we can keep them from bumping into each other, um, <laughs> I think I think that though um, where what we've done though in the military is we've built this standoff military, and our technology with cruise missiles and you know hitting something you know five hundred miles away, that's changed that whole thing about I think policemen because in the past we interpreted that. World's policemen of having, you know, troops on the ground. I won't say boots on the ground because that's insulting, but troops actually there, again, enduring the hardship, Marines, Army, that are actually doing things. Our our answer right now, everything is still cruise missiles and drones and 500 miles away and, you know, watching it on a screen someplace in Missouri and, and you know, taking people down that way.
0: Well, it's interesting how that plays politically, too, because uh, Barack Obama did many more drone strikes than George Bush ever did. For some reason, the public's okay with us atomizing people from above, uh, you know, with 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 no trial, and and sometimes right. we don't even hear about it. It just politically, it works a lot better to to be a policeman that way.
3: Yeah, and and the ratio is literally something like five hundred and twenty to eight. You know, the Obama administration launched five hundred and twenty you know cruise missiles and and drone strikes versus eight that George Bush did. It wasn't even close so and, and you know, there's a lot of whoopses that happen there. We've hit things that we shouldn't have hit. Um, there's probably been friendly fire on our side and and so, but it's 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 antiseptic. You can kind of go to wash your hands. you can you know i I'm not the I've never been guy where the and the, I know air Force guys can do this. They could literally you know get in a plane in Germany, fly a, a a combat mission over Iraq or someplace in the Middle East, and then go back and have dinner with their with their family. You know, so I, that's but that's where we're at right now. There's not a lot of people that are that are downrange that are during the hardship, except, you know, the army and the Marines.
1: So uh, as long as we're in the Middle East, let's talk a little specific uh, geopolitics. Um, what did Barack Obama get right and wrong about Syria and, and how has it left us where we are now? What did he get right on Syria? Let's see. Um, well, I mean, uh, for instance, just uh, if you, you share this opinion. Uh, I often said Barack Obama did nothing and he did it poorly um, because maybe nothing was all that could be done, uh, you know, in that mess.
3: Right. Barack Obama, I think, allowed Hillary Clinton and others to dictate what was going to be important. Um, Libya, for example, and how that became a high priority for the administration. And look and look what happened there. I, I think by the time Syria comes around, he is completely disinterested in in what's going on there. Um, because he's been burned. Yeah, it, he he doesn't have any really kind of stake in the game. Doesn't doesn't have an economic interest, but not seeing the the geopolitical issue of the Iranians getting involved, not recognizing what the impact has been on Iraq and completely oblivious to the Kurds and their plight that they have uh, with no with no kind of vision. Barack Obama's entire presidency from a foreign policy perspective was to get to his last day in office. And you got to look at good presidents, I think, that look well over the horizon and set things up for things to happen when they leave office. Barack Obama then focused so much on the Iranian um, nuclear deal, and all that was about was making sure that the Iranians didn't get nukes while he was in office because t- they're going to have him 10 years down the road based on that deal. So he got a lot wrong. Uh, the, whole, the, biggest, the biggest mistake he made was allowing the Russians back in, giving them uh, the, the keys to take control of their chemical weapons, which will, will obviously – was not well defined because um, they might have gotten rid of some of their sarin gas and some of their their persistent nerve agent, but they still had a lot of other things to kill civilians with.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, ben Rhodes from the Obama administration's written a book recently, and he talks about during that period of time when they're trying to decide what to do with Syria, and and, uh, and it was a, it was a short term, uh, you know, and what you just said, trying to get to the end of his office. That's really interesting because it was. Um maybe a little self-centered or u s centered short-term thinking of what will be good for individual soldiers or I hate to be so crass to just say politically, but well, short-term mm-hmm. thinking. Um, you know, it it didn't look like getting involved in Libya did any good. Remember we went in because I think Barack Obama made this announcement that. Uh, the word was on the street that Gaddafi was going to go door to door and start slaughtering people, and we weren't going to stand by and let that happen. Well, we we certainly let that no. happen a lot in Syria, but Barack Obama felt right. like whether we get involved or not, that's going to happen. So why would we be involved?
3: Yeah, and there's you know nobody to drone. He draw he drew a red line, didn't do anything about it. I think that was a real problem as well, um, and and he just wasn't interested, um, and not recognizing the guys in the Pentagon were though. The guys in the Pentagon recognizes the Kurds. We're going to have to have a home at some point, and they were looking to have that as the as the you know eastern part of Syria. And you look well over the horizon and you say Syria, Iran, North Korea, China, Russia. That's a pretty formidable alliance of those countries, and if we don't do something to disrupt that, we're going to have a problem in the future.
1: Well, Liz Sly, who we also talked to not long ago, wrote a great piece. I think it was a year and a half, two years ago, 10 potential wars that could erupt from Syria slash Iraq, and she's just nailed it one after the other. Um, The the ugly ain't, ain't even begun in that region, potentially speaking. Uh, what's what's the big flashpoint? You mentioned the Kurds. They're obviously going to be one of them, but what do you anticipate? Yeah, I,
3: I think that's what it is. Uh, 30 million people that consider themselves part of something called Kurdistan that, that don't have an indigenous country and yet have all the capabilities to have a country, natural resources that exist where they live. Mm-hmm. Uh, You carve out a piece of Turkey, Iran, Syria, and Iraq, and you can clearly get a country out of that that defend itself, that can participate in the modern world. And um, they're going to likely have to fight a war to do it. And NATO is going to have to get involved at some point to stop it because the Turks are going to prevent it on some level. And we've already seen some of the, the human suffering that's taken place. Our country has historically supported this. And now we're kind of backing down off of it. I don't think Donald Trump, Donald Trump doesn't get it yet. Uh, The previous, you know, George Bush got it and and maybe Bill Clinton got it a little bit. Barack Obama had nothing, wanted nothing to do with it.
0: Kurds are pretty good fighters too, right?
3: They are. And they fight with literally sticks and rocks. They fight with weapons from the 1940s and 50s. Um, But what they, they're smarter and they are committed. And it's just kind of a classic, you know, they've got something to fight for. Um, They get up every day and we realize that if they don't if they don't defend this area if they don't uh, you know fight that they're not going to survive their families are not going to survive so they they have it ingrained in their in their culture
0: boy and we're talking about all this different stuff and the the original reason we went into Afghanistan obviously was to not have another 911 how much of this has an effect on terrorism in the United States, which was the whole point of all of this at one point?
3: Right. And I think, but if we don't go into Iraq, that's where the world changed. The the, the going into Afghanistan was for the right reasons. And if we had focused our efforts on that and done that uh, in a manner that that really set up uh, the Afghan government, and moved that forward, it would have worked. But um, the Bush administration, is, they're going to go down in history as making the, the, the biggest mistake. And you know, obviously in the 21st century, when it comes to, this selective war going into Iraq and what's what's happened since then that's that's been the tipping point from my perspective the whole the world has changed since that 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 what, March day when we decided to start you know bombing inside and taking down the Iraqi government wow. that that that's been the problem we we've that, upset the apple cart now to the point where we can't even predict what's going to happen
0: that that's really interesting it'll be hard to explain in future generations how did how did the United States end up in Iraq i mean it will be It'll take some doing.
1: Well, not only that, but then to try to explain how that question my idea was implemented. I mean, yeah. the actual implementation of the plans, the decisions made, uh, the uh, L. Paul Bremer chapter, of the thing, the dismissing the entire Bathurst mm-hmm. regime, it's just in retrospect, it was just
3: nightmarishly mishandled. Right. And, and taking 400,000 troops in the Iraqi army and unemploying them automatically and and trying to use some model that they thought was from World War II about the denazification, debathification, de whatever they were calling it. Um, you know, th- this is where, and frankly, the civilian think tanks also have some blame. You look at the neocons that are, you know, on the Democrat side now because they're all never Trumpers. They have much, they have a lot of responsibility. They got their fingerprints on this as well. So it, it was a, you know, poor strategy and even executed poorly uh, when the time came.
1: So here's my new thing, Mike. Uh, I think we're underemphasizing our own hemisphere uh, do you spend any time, much time thinking about Central and South America and the incredibly uh, unstable politics and potential violence there?
3: No, I don't. Um, I know the Pentagon does, and I know that um, the Pentagon back in the 80s did get involved with a lot of um, the drug cartels, but that's all waned away. And, um, you know, we don't we don't focus on South America, what's going on there, and, and the fact that these drugs are coming through the border, and we don't focus on – what's going on in Mexico uh, for whatever reason. Um, I think, again, we're still fighting the last war and and we're concerned about a world war in Europe that could possibly take place. But, um, you know, there's a a tremendous amount of resources we could focus here. And, you know, so go back to Barack Obama again. If Barack Obama decided to say, you know what, I'm gonna focus on that right now. I'm gonna really focus efforts towards Central and South America, that would have been fine. But but they didn't. They didn't do anything. They, they just basically kind of ran the clock out. Um, but I know from a military perspective, um, we, we're doing what we can on in intel collection. And, but, but but knowing full well that we still have to be careful because we've never really sent troops anywhere with the, within our own hemisphere. We've always sent them overseas to fight. Right. Yeah. I'm
1: thinking more in terms of foreign policy than military action specifically. But I think we in the United States ought to be Putting political correctness aside, good luck with that, and studying the hell out of the uh, refugee crisis in Europe and the stresses that that's causing. Because if the instability grows in Venezuela and uh, El Salvador and Honduras and and the rest of them, I mean, we could be looking at a hell of a refugee crisis. And we already have societal strains um, based Mm on, you know, call it an invasion, call it a migration, call it a flood of refugees.
3: One thing we have to our advantage, though, is space. Um, the the refugees in Europe, you know, kind of get there on boats, and, and there's whole you know kind of businesses that are set up there. And you, you look at what happened in Germany, for example. Germany. I went to Germany a couple of years ago. It's completely different, and and they're gonna. What you know, Trump said they're going to lose their culture. Uh, you know, I think he's, he what he means is not only are people coming there, but they're just not assimilating. It's the challenge I think we have in our country too as well. I mean, we want people to assimilate and be be Americans. It's no, it's okay to come here. You got to come legally, but you have to assimilate. But I think it's a lot harder for people in those countries in South America to still to still get here because there's really not a mechanism to to get them here unless they go by land through. You know what are some pretty tough tough conditions
1: yeah if you've never looked at a map it's uh, easy to forget that Africa and Europe are like it, it, uh, how long would it take in you know, a decent power boat to get from Libya to Italy I mean I, I, I like you're some yeah, sort of power think,
3: boating expert it not long is the answer no not long right exactly and that it, people have been doing it since you know for for 500 years I mean and for what goes on there and there's lots of commerce and things that, that can that can travel it can it can take people and and make them and, and get into that spot, and once they get there, then they just declare, and then from there they can move with, through Europe freely because of the European Union.
0: So, how about the uh, what the Obama administration was attempting to do was the uh, shift away from Middle Eastern problems be, dominating our lives to to China as the up and coming. Is threat the right word? Is China a threat or are they just going to overtake us as an economy at some point?
3: Well, they, they, that's supposedly by 2025 they would in size. But, um, you know, the pivot to the Pacific that never has happened again from the administration, that administration's perspective and then from the military's perspective, a lot of it was based on, believe it or not, Global warming, because we thought some of those islands that exist there in the South Pacific were going to be 50 feet and more underwater. They were going to displace millions of people. We were going to have to do, you know, we, we were pouring all this money into again something that just hasn't happened yet. That that was kind of their vision of it. Um, China, that was I threat. was not
0: I, aware of that. That's what drove the pivot to China was global warming and worry about the islands going underwater.
3: Yeah, that's right. And what what the pressure that would do to the navy that our navy would have to. They would be rescuing a million um, people, or immigrants or, or, or a million refugees, uh, on a yearly basis or more, as the the, the 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 shores would rise and and people would be you know losing uh, their homes. And so I, again, I don't know why we assume that mission, but that was that was the basis of a lot of what that pivot to the Pacific was about.
1: Meanwhile, China's taken a generations-long view of things and building those little islands that, of course, they will not militarize till the moment they militarize it, 10 minutes later. Mm-hmm. Um, how much does that uh, concern you, the idea that China may be uh, man- maneuvering itself into a position where it can choke off commercial sea lanes and, and, and free navigation?
3: Well, as long as we fund our navy and continue to have a presence there, I just don't think that'll happen. Because if they want to have a military um, fight there, it's going to be no match. Because we won't fight it on the ground. We, you know, we don't. We couldn't manufacture a billion bullets to kill the Chinese that we'd have to kill. Um, it would come from space. It would come from the sea, and uh, eventually we would have, you know, all of the the wherewithal in order to 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 do something there if they decided to do that. I, I don't think they're They're dumb enough to do that, and they do take that long-in-the-tooth approach. I mean you can argue that because of China's population, eventually they should be able to win every event in the Olympics. You know, know, the billion people that should find everybody that's seven foot tall, they can win every basketball game. (laughs) So from a a military perspective, you look at them and say, but they still can't hold and keep ground that they want to have. And just like us, we we wouldn't, fight, we wouldn't have that fight. Where, where would we want to fight China from the Army's perspective? So it happens in the sea lanes. and It'll happen in cyber. I think that's what we've got to be concerned about.
1: You know, I always throw this in when people are talking about ascendant China. They have amazing demographic problems coming down the road, which, you know, keep an eye on that. Uh, it'll mm-hmm. be more like Japan now than Japan in the 80s, which everybody said was going to take over and rule the world, et cetera, et cetera.
0: I want to get mm-hmm. to everything before we wear you out and you finally hang up on us, but we haven't talked anything <laughs> about uh, – You know, because we're talking about various threats around the world, isn't this still the greatest threat out there, really for all of mankind? It's it's amazing. Nobody would have predicted this, that nobody has set off a nuke in anger since the 40s. At some point, that's going to happen, isn't it?
3: Well, it's down to accountability of nuclear weapons, number one, um, and the strict—you know, you just can't make that. You've got to be a industrialized nation to have it. It's only eight countries that, or even have this nuclear capability to enrich it, um, and it can't be shrunk. I was—you know—the new Mission Impossible movie talks about how they're going to have some suitcase nuclear weapon. It's just this doesn't make—that's not something that someone can make right now without the accountability that that, that, that goes with having a nuclear weapon, but just the fact that there hasn't been an accident. Now, there's been a couple of accidents. In fact, there was some in the 80s. Got, some guy dropped a wrench down a missile silo there and that almost blew half of Arkansas away. Mm. Um, but um, there have been challenges. But to your point, you, statistically, you would think something would have happened. And, and when, if and when it ever does, as, as this nuclear arsenal ages and metal rusts and the equipment to maintain it goes offline and floppy disks that are no longer used to, to launch it get changed, there's a real possibility that that uh, that could happen
1: wow so you're more concerned well i won't speak for you but are you more concerned about decay and irresponsibility than say pakistan and india getting into a beef or north korea selling their technology to isis or that sort of thing
3: no i'm concerned about north korea and the proliferation of their technology because they're not going to unlearn what they have but but whether or not other countries can get the material to do it is another question and we can control that to, to some degree. So I'm, I, I, that that is an issue. There's no question. I think I am concerned about our nuclear arsenal because, I mean, I hate to talk about the Air Force again, but the bottom line is the Air Force works it and the Air Force doesn't care about it because the Air Force wants to fly F-16s and they want to fly and do all the sexy stuff. And the guys that do the nuclear mission don't get promoted. They're all disgruntled. You see the drug problems we've had in a couple of silos. And to me, it's a real lack of leadership. And someone better be paying attention to make sure that that equipment there is not eroding or is still functional because we still might have to use it god forbid at some point
1: yeah back to north korea just briefly i grew up in chicagoland and if i was on the west side of chicago right now and i've got a really really good expensive gun and i am absolutely desperate for cash it's not difficult to to imagine what i'm going to do and so yeah north korea my god the idea of them proliferating is uh, it's got to be front and center all the
3: time not only their nuclear capability, but their missile technology, because North Korea has a quasi-space program. Um, you know, good, not great. And in order to have this ICBM capability, you have to really have a space program. Which is why, anytime they've launched these missiles in the past, they don't we don't know what they're hitting, and they just go into the water. I, you know, for them to say they could hit the the West Coast remains to be seen. But uh, you got to have, in most cases, you do have to have this space program and missiles in order to ensure that you can hit the other side of it. But if North Korea propagates that technology to Iran, with more of the, what's going on on the nuclear side. Then the Iranians come up ten years from now with this nuclear power. The Israelis will stand for that for about maybe five to ten minutes, and then all you know the F-18s get deployed from, uh, from there, and then that war starts because the, Iran- the the Israelis are not going to put up with the Iranians having any kind of nuclear capability.
0: It's just it's just amazing that if you sit around and have a conversation with a you know smart person like you, or maybe it's dumb guys in a bar or whatever, and you're discussing you know military things, what could happen? You always end up back in the Middle East. You always end up yeah. back in religious arguments that are several thousand years old, uh, uh. driving what's going to blow up the world. It's just incredible.
1: Speaking of which, one more geopolitical hotspot, if we may, uh, it's it's a pivot point between Europe and Asia, between the Muslim world, the Christian world. Turkey has got to be, you know, unless North Korea d- d- sells the missiles as you're describing, et cetera, et cetera. Turkey, to me, is is going to be the center of of all that is truly dangerous in the next 5 years and that is a that's a regime that's teetering it's it's right. a it's a fairly powerful military you got the kurdis thing they're all tied into turkey
3: second largest military after the us and nato is turkey and this regime is not good for the united states and the united states interests and in the past turkey had been the the way we communicated with the iranians go back to the 80s and the 90s um, when you know on the outset it looked like we were never doing anything with with Iran, uh, well we we were able to communicate with them through Turkey. So they they'd always been a conduit and always been a really close ally. But what's going on there now is really scary. And again, they have nuclear weapons. Our nuclear weapons inside of Turkey at Incirlik Air Base in some of these locations. They claim that they're not there. I mean, they're not ICBMs. But but the bottom line is they've got them in their possession. And um, this that that leader there is you know off the wall. He's unhinged for 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 no question. And 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 I think that from the United States' perspective, we need to be watching that a lot closely. And the Trump administration putting sanctions on them until we release this political prisoners, we're we're not off to a good start there right now.
0: Did you just say Turkey has the second biggest army behind the United States in NATO?
3: Uh, Yeah, I believe that's what they do in terms of what they spend In, in NATO itself. They're bigger than UK, Canada, those other ones in terms of what they spend. Absolutely.
0: Well, that's interesting. I didn't know
1: that. No. So listen, final question for me, unless I come up with another one, um, a good buddy of mine uh, who is no longer with us, God rest his soul, he was a Marine. Um, he was one of my best childhood friends, and he would occasionally refer to me as a silly villain, which um, which I actually appreciated because I like a good insult, and I loved him. Um, what should or could the civilian folks who are listening to this podcast do or remember or donate? How do civilians support America's military? How should we?
3: I, I just say this, that anybody is in the military came from the civilian world and they're a reflection of the civilian world and their values. And if you were, you know, squared away and if you were smart and you were, you know, a, a good citizen and you loved your country before you went in the military, you, you do that when you come out of the military. The kind of the dirty little secret is, unfortunately, there are some people that were crazy when they got in and they got the military, let them in and they're crazy, then they're out and they, they got painted with this broad brush. Um, as the military made that happen, the military caused that to happen. But I, I just I'm always trying to pick that that out before whether or not someone was crazy based on whether they you know, whether they were before the military, after the military. But but the bottom line is this. Uh, m- most veterans, I would say, and, and just don't necessarily have to be thanked for their service. It's something that when I am, I say, you know, listen, I volunteer and I, I appreciate it. And thanks for paying your taxes and the whole thing. But most people don't want to project that uh, veterans don't want to project that value back that other people have to do it or insist upon doing it so i think that um you know the the break that the civilians would want to say is just you know they ask them what what can i any idea to help you kind of assimilate or you're doing something right now what's what's kind of going on because just like everybody we all we're all carrying a burden to something and um you know, if you're a veteran or not a veteran you're, all, you're carrying something Um, so to just, just be, be a, be a citizen of the United States and support and support your government and support, you know, your, your town and your city and, and have them make sure they make that contribution.
1: Sometimes support them by being critical of them too. I mean, obviously I know, you know that, um, I know
0: from my brother at various times when he was in Iraq for the longest period of time, come over and mow his lawn. Uh, his kids were little and his wife was busy.
1: Yeah. Remember the sacrifices military families are making. I'd suggest too. you know, we've long believed I've, I've always said that. Uh, the one thing that bothers me sometimes about maybe even a worshipfulness of, of military folks is that I believe everybody should serve their country. And I say that as a small government libertarian type, a skeptic of, of government from top to bottom. Um, uh, our country is us. It's, it's the Constitution and it's the people And we all need to be serving the country if we want it to be healthy and strong. And sometimes I worry people look to the military and tell them, you do it. Me, I'm going to chase money and do whatever I want.
3: Right. I I feel that way sometimes. But but then I look at uh, statistics about 70 percent of the youth of America can't even meet the military minimum of height weight standards or they've been popped hot on a drug test or something like that. You know, if you want to. If you you know you, you want to be a support your country then then get in shape, <laughs> support your country, go vote. Um, don't uh, commit crimes, don't take drugs, don't contribute to those kinds of things that 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 are really bad for society. That's what concerns me. The military shouldn't be this you know fat farm shouldn't be this place where people get their life straight. you know the judge give you the order between jail or the military. those are kind of the old days because the military is a, a profession that like anything else is, and we want people that are highly competent, highly committed. Um, and that's, what's going to matter. It's just, it's just as it matters in the civilian world as well.
1: Mike Lyons. Hey, Mike, we can't thank you enough for the time. Really, really interesting. And we know the folks love it, uh, when you stop by. So thanks.
3: Thanks guys. It's a privilege to be on with you guys when I am. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, thanks you're, for having t- me. you're too kind. All right. Thanks Mike. Great to talk.
0: That actually is too kind. We don't deserve that. No, we don't know. No. That was, it uh... is not a privilege to be on our show. <laughs> it's just, you know. Uh, well, uh, I mean, what? it's nice for him to say. I have so
1: much guilt over so many things. Let me roll around in yeah. that for a moment. I know where I am in life. I it, don't. I know where I am in life. You know, uh, you've talked a little bit uh, about the fact that you wanted for a, a long time in childhood to be in the military. Right? I was
0: planning on that. Clear through, through my senior year of high school, military. The uh, Marine recruiter was at our house. I was filling out paperwork. The whole thing.
1: Wow, you got that far. Oh yeah, yeah. And was it because you have to poop out in the open? That freaked you <laughs> out, or what? In the Marines, I remember when. I made reference to a good friend of mine who's no longer with us, but when Scott told me that, um, yeah, that's what happens, I thought, oh, my God, I don't want to do that, which is ridiculous.
0: You know, course, several but. several of my friends I was riding motorcycles with that, you know, that uh, summer before senior year, that sort of thing. I mean, we were riding motorcycles, God, all night long sometimes. Honest to God, all night long. Mm-hmm. They'd come honk outside my parents' house. And I'd hear him, and I'd go down, get on, get dressed, and run downstairs before school's gonna start. We'd be riding around motorcycles at three o'clock in the morning. Wow, rural Kansas, where you could actually—I remember one time on a hot night, stopping on the highway, and we took a little nap on the highway, laying down on the highway because there's no cars in the lanes. Yeah, because because the warmth was still on the—we were cold, and there was still warmth on the highway from the asphalt. There's no people. Wow, no, <laughs> well, no cars. But anyway. <laughs> Um, they were going in the Marines, and they did go in the Marines. And I don't, for the life of me, remember why I didn't. I really don't. I, I became aware of the radio program. And you know the way you are when a kid. You're just like this way and that way. I think I became aware of this radio program, and I just, wow, that was the end of that. That's am direction. Yeah,
1: yeah. I was told that you can't get in if you'd ever smoked pot, and I'm afraid I'd crossed that line. Mm. Um, That was just not happening. This was in the 80s, keep in mind, which um the need for guys was a little different than... You know, for instance, the Vietnam era or the ever never-ending uh, Middle East conflict era. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't just, have they that They could problem. be
0: picky in the 80s. Yeah. I didn't have that problem, but I, I, I'm happy with the way my life turned off. So you don't want to change things if you could go back in a time machine because maybe it wouldn't turn out good. I hear you. But I wish I'd have done it in some levels. I'd like to have seen, you know, because you do that sort of thing to see if you could do it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you get to be a Marine for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah. Which is very, very cool. Sure. Um, I don't know, you know, how much we want to go into this. And I know both of us have stuff that we really probably shouldn't talk about with our families. But we didn't even mention during our chat with my clients. Well, you mentioned your brother's active duty army and mine is mm-hmm. active duty uh, Navy. Um, and that definitely has an influence on our perspective. Uh, Do did you, did you ever talk to your brother about just in a macro way how he feels about his
0: military career? He does not talk much mm. he does not talk much mm. period yeah. which is a product of his uh, military and war experience and combat experience. yeah he's one of those guys that does not talk about he, uh, he, he is a big uh, regular people don't get it yeah I can't talk to them. I can understand military guy I, mean, I, can, I can understand, understand it, understand it too.
1: That to the extent that I understand it.
0: It's very frustrating, but I can certainly understand it. Yeah. You know, my dad, uh, it's funny, it just
1: popped into my head. My dad was an officer in the Air Force that got the rough side of Mike Lyons' tongue, didn't it? The Chair Force? Anyway, no disrespect to you, Air Force <laughs> guys. That's an old joke. Anyway, um, but my dad was an Air Force officer, and he did not encourage me to get into the military. Um, He talked a little bit about how some of his commanding officers were uh, arbitrary and... and and he just felt like there was a real lack of justice in it, and it felt like a gamble because you'd come across some son of a bitch who didn't like you, and he would put a black mark on your record, yeah. and all it takes is one black mark.
0: I'm aware of that. My brother's oh. had those experiences, definitely. Yeah.
1: Well, what's funny is I, the black sheep of the family, the older brother decided that wasn't for me, plus there was the whole pot thing. Um, uh, and But my little brother is uh, going to retire after a 20-year-plus uh, a military career and has done great and and somehow avoided the black mark probably cuz he got the good jeans I got the rotten jeans um but he's had a mostly really positive experience being in the military on the other hand you know he's a, he's a navy guy he's a submariner and and that's a very very different experience than being infantry yeah. in uh the early 20th 21st century
0: um uh i remember my brother and my dad talking about this one time because my dad my dad asked my brother he said could they punch you in basic training <laughs> my my brother said no he said, when I was in basic training, they could punch you, but they had to ask you first. They Your had, dad said he, that? My dad said that. Yeah. He said they had changed that because they used to be able to just punch you. <laughs> Jeez. So they, could just, they could just walk up and punch you in the face. Right. Then there was some sort of change as we got soft, apparently, in the late 50s, early 60s. Right. They had to ask you. Of course, you had to say yes, yes. because you're, you know. Private
1: Armstrong, may I punch you, you in the face? You're going to get
0: punished if you didn't. Sir, yes, sir. <laughs> oh, my God. You know what now c- they can't punch you. At all oh you know we
1: uh, that's another thing we could have talked to Mike about was yeah. military discipline, how it's changed he, he made mention of the fat farm thing, um, so obviously it has changed that's
0: something. anyway, yeah. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I did.'re here. information.